So we made some big announcements this week here at Daily Wire. Our biggest announcement is that Jordan Peterson is now a member of Daily Wire Plus, and he's going to be doing all sorts of amazing content for you behind the paywall. Well, Jordan and I had the opportunity to sit down and film a new episode of The Search. We discussed some really deep stuff. First, in President Ronald Reagan's farewell address, he said, all great change in America begins around the dinner table. Our friends over at Good Ranchers take this very, very seriously. Good Ranchers cares deeply about providing your family with high-quality meat at a reasonable price. All of their cattle are grass-fed, grain-finished, they grow in a stress-free environment. Good Ranchers ships 100% American meat right to your door. When you subscribe, your price is locked in for the life of your subscription. Plus, right now, they're giving away two free ribeyes, $100 value, to my listeners through July 4th. You heard that right. Go to GoodRanchers.com Ben. Use my code Ben to get two 18-ounce prime center-cut ribeyes free with your order. I got to meet with the Good Ranchers team this week. They are just phenomenal people. Love these guys. They understand the struggle of working nine to five, still finding the time to eat, pray, and be with your family. Their product and business model was created with the intention of bringing families together through shared meals at the end of a long day. All great change in America begins around the dinner table, and all great meals in America begin with Good Ranchers. Hurry, the clock is ticking on your free ribeyes. While other places will charge you over 50 bucks per steak for ribeyes like these, Good Ranchers is giving two of them away for free. These are USDA Prime 100% American steakhouse quality cuts of beef. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash Ben. Claim those ribeyes today before they run out. So the last time we saw each other, you were talking about kind of your, um, you kind of came up with the political theory of everything. So I was reading the propositions that you're yeah, putting across you, yeah. as far as, the, I think it's, I mean, I think it's really good, especially from a sort of taking on the empiricist, taking on Locke, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it, it's taken me a long time to really understand the debate between the empiricists and the rationalists. You know, and the empirical claim that you derive all your knowledge from sense data, it seems to make some sense in a superficial way, because obviously we're informed by the environment, even if you think about that biologically, and we're ultimately informed by the environment. But it becomes much more hazy when you start to understand that there's an infinite, almost infinite plethora of data, especially when things can be contemplated in combination. And so the problem with the empirical approach, one of the problems is that there's probably two. One of them is we drown in data. So then the question arises, well, we are informed by the outside Thank world. Thank you so much. Thank you. But we still have to select what we look at. And that's a huge problem. It's that's. That, I really think, is the fundamental philosophical problem of the last half of the 20th century. And then there's also, and that's part of Hume's objection that you can't derive an ought from an is. And, and part of the technical reason for that seems to be, well, why not? Well, there's too many facts. And so you can't draw an unerring, there's, too many, there's both too many facts and simultaneously too many possible futures. Mm -hmm. And so how do you draw a through line from an infinite number of facts to an infinite number of potential futures? And the answer is, the answer is, we don't know how we do that. And so, so that's, two of the, that's two of the problems. And so I've been trying to understand how we solve that. And there's other people working very hard on that problem, all sorts of people, all the people in, who are trying to build machines that can perceive and so forth. Um, but uh, uh, the, 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 the notes I sent you were an attempt to really boil down what I've been thinking about in some sense for 40 years. And the first thing I figured out is that you have to prioritize your perceptions. And so 
The problem with the empirical approach is that it sort of presumes the self-evidence of the external world and that all you have to do to be informed by the world is look and somehow what's there is just delivered to you. This is also the problem with the behaviorists because the behaviorists always talked about stimulus response. Right. And they didn't need a brain. And the reason they didn't need the brain is because they hid it in the idea of stimulus. It's like, well, a rat's in a cage. What's in the cage? And the answer is, well, in a near infinite number of things to perceive. Mm -hmm. So then the question is, well, what's the stimulus? And the behaviorist answer is, we don't ask that question. <laughs> we, we allow that to be self-evident. Oh, well, that's where you hid all the complexity, right? In that self-evidence. Right. And so, if you look at the physiology of You're just a blank screen and things are being projected yeah, onto you. Yeah, and obvious things, self-evident <laughs> things. <laughs> like, well, the, the running wheel and the water bottle. It's like, there they are. Can't you just see them? It's <laughs> like, well, no, maybe I see the glints of the reflection off the water bottle because my eyes aren't focused my eyes are focused such that what, what the water bottle appears is as a blur. Mm -hmm. And why isn't that blur the water bottle? Mm -hmm. And because it also is the water bottle. And so, and that's a very difficult thing to think through. Um, and so, so then you get from that, from the complexity, the complexity of the stimulus of the world to the complexity of the multiple futures. And you think, well, we solve that by prioritizing our perceptions. And so when you and I are sitting here talking to each other, we look at our faces, we look at each other's faces, and we do that, we particularly look at eyes. And our eyes have actually evolved so that we have an evident contrast between the iris and pupil and the sclera. And the reason we have that most animals don't, including most primates, is because it's of crucial importance for human beings to see where other human beings point their eyes, because then you can tell how they're prioritizing their perceptions. Mm. And from that, you can derive almost instantly an embodied sense of their ethic. So because really it's so cool, really well, good. it's so cool. I mean, and that's what we do when we're watching a movie is what you want in terms of characterization is you want to set up someone who has a goal, right? And whatever the goal is, it might be a nefarious goal, but your, your character has to have a motivation. And then the motivation has to be hinted at through their actions and their perceptions. And then the viewer, cottons on to that goal, starts to infer it in an embodied way and reads off that embodiment because once you can adopt the goal of someone else, you can duplicate their emotional responses. And the reason we want to do that is because we're really interested in embodying hierarchies of pro perception prioritization, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And so... How, and, and does it matter whether it's conscious or it's unconscious? When, when you're prioritizing, I mean, obviously... you. Well, you're not really thinking through sometimes. Sometimes, sometimes you are thinking through where do I want to put my eyes? Like, most what do of I want it to look you're at? not. Most of you're not. No, obviously. and most of it is you know you hear the the radicals, the postmodernists, talk about implicit perception, right? And most perception is implicit, and so most of the prioritization is done unconsciously and automatically. Otherwise, what well, has to be because otherwise, and a lot of it's guided by built-in instincts, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not only unconscious, it's even, it's a biological a priori. Mm -hmm. You know, so here, for example, the focal depth of a newborn infant is precisely equivalent to the distance between their head in the cradling position for breastfeeding and the mother's eyes. Right. Right, so that's an a priori perceptual frame that's, that's, that, that took literally billions of years to construct because it's so unbelievably complicated. And so, 
when I, once I realized that, that you have to prioritize your perceptions, and, you ha and to prioritize means you have to have a hierarchy because priorities means some things are more important than others. Right. Then you can, the next thing you can think of is, well, does that hierarchy have to be unified or not? And the answer is, well, if it's not unified, then it's not a hierarchy. It's also, you're all over the place, mm -hmm. right? So if you're talking to someone confused, that's unsettling. And the reason it's unsettling, I think, is because you don't know what they're perceiving and that opens up that rat's nest and you don't know what they're up to. Right, you don't know what their goal up. is. It's like no. sitting with somebody and their eyes are all over the place. Yes, you, exactly. you, well, you, can't, you also, can't coordinate. It's also so interesting that that's also a hallmark of insanity. I used to watch the uh, uh, Sesame Street and the Muppets. Mm -hmm. and whenever they had a puppet who was not right. The googly eyes, yeah. The yeah. eyes were all over the place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that means they're not focused and, and integrated towards a single goal. And the psychological consequence of that is hopelessness because you experience hope and positive emotion in relationship to a goal. Mm -hmm. And anxiety, because you experience anxiety when there's too many things to look at or right. too many things to do. And so there's actually an immediate existential consequence to not, not having a hierarchy of perceptual priority. And so all of that dispenses with the criticisms of hierarchy. It's like, no, you need a hierarchy because you cannot filter the world or the possible futures without a hierarchy. And so then the next question arises, what, what's essential to the hierarchy and also what's at the highest point of the hierarchy? Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've been thinking about is that the whole biblical corpus is a collection of narratives that shine a different light of characterization on the spirit that occupies the pinnacle in the hierarchy of perception. So, for example, in the first, in the opening chapters of Genesis, God is the process that generates the habitable order that is good out of the chaos of potential. And that's the image of, it's, that's the image that's stamped on men and women. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's wonderful. It's perfect, right? That's, that's perfect. And then later, God is the spirit you walk with in the walled garden of paradise if you're unself-conscious and unashamed. Because when Adam sins and knows he's naked, he hides and he hides from God. Right. So he, he can't walk unself-consciously with God anymore. Mm -hmm. So whatever God is, it's, it's whoever, whatever spirit occupies you when you're in the walled garden and you're unself-conscious. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay. Then the story of Cain and Abel. God is the spirit that calls you out for making false sacrifices. Okay, mm -hmm. and that you know, I, I don't see that in, as any different, in some sense, than the call of conscience, mm -hmm. you know, and your knowledge that if you're pulling the wool over your own eyes, and others, you know, and that knowledge is inescapable and will absolutely torment you. So I, I've been thinking about a lot of that in, in the context of what sin means. Mm -hmm. So we you know, very often in sort of modern rhetoric, we talk about sinning against ourselves, but that, that actually is, I think, what sin is. The idea is that your true identity is in line, if I'm following mm -hmm. you, mm -hmm. with the hierarchy that puts you in touch with the pinnacle of the, that's what you're yeah. aiming at. You're aiming at yeah. that. And so if your identity, what you're aiming at is that, then anything that strays from that is by nature a sin. Right. It's a betrayal of yourself. Right. right. And so treating- and to miss the mark. Right. And, to, and so to treat a sin as inherent to you, or mm -hmm. to treat a sin as core to your identity, mm -hmm. is a betrayal of what you are supposed to be. It's a betrayal right. of 
At the, the hierarchy that lends you order and so that yeah. creates yeah. chaos within you. Yeah. It destroys yeah. you. Yeah. Sin, yeah. sin yeah. destroys you in yes. that way. Yes, and that, well, and I would say that state of sin, that's hell, fundamentally. And I think it's, and there is an element of eternality to it because it feels like it will never end. And I think you can make a case that in its direst states, it's worse than death. And so, there, I was working on a, there's a, it's in Luke, I think it's 1720 to 1721, I think, where Christ says the kingdom of God is within you. But there are multiple translations of that because it's, it's within you, among you, between you. There's ambivalence about that and, and being a lot of debate about that because you might say, well, is it, a, is it something that's between you and God, which is what the Protestant would say? Or is it something between you and the church and the community and God, which is mm -hmm. maybe more what the Catholics would say, maybe more what the Jews would say. And I would say that ambiguity is purposeful because you could say, well, you sin against yourself. But then if you understand the self in a, in, in a more symphonic way. Yes, this is right. This you is can right. see there's a note in a phrase. You're the note, but the note has to be in a phrase and the phrase has to be in a melody and the melody has to be in a symphony and all those have to work together. And right. So if you sin against yourself, but you're also simultaneously sinning against the principle that holds your marriage together and the principle that makes your family able to weather the storms of Noah, let's say, and the principle that keeps your community together and the and the prophetic tradition. You're doing all that at the same time. This is, I so, think, why you, know, you and I were discussing recently why kind of atomistic liberalism falls short. And it's because yeah. its, it's picture of man is just not correct. I mean, there's a, a question that Thomas Jefferson asks about the Constitution. Basically, why should you be bound by something that you didn't consent to, right? Social contract theory basically says that unless you consented to be a part of a thing, that thing cannot be imposed upon you. And so Thomas Jefferson says, okay, well, I was born after the Constitution. Why exactly should I be bound by the Constitution? Why not re-up it every couple of years in order to make sure that everybody's still on the same page? And you hear that sort of argument being made today politically, but it's really interesting when you, when you go back to the, the description of what's going on at Mount Sinai. It specifically says in the Bible that this is a contract that's being made between those who are here and those who are not here mm -hmm. with us today. It's being made between us and future generations. How do you make a contract with people who have not yet been born, how can that bind them? And the, the mm -hmm. idea is that when you're born, you're not born into a wasteland is the only thing there. You are inherently mm -hmm. born into a system. And that system helps mm -hmm. define you and shape you. And so instead of modern society, which sort of sees the inner th sense of authenticity as the core of you, and your authenticity is- and and, it, and and it's in opposition to institutions and roles. Right. Institutions and roles are impositions on you. Yeah, like the, the, the conflict between the superego and the ego, that's an antagonistic, mm -hmm. it's conceptualized as an antagonistic relationship. And, and, and the, Piaget and, doesn't look at it that yeah, way. And, and the more and the more authentic you are, the more institutions you blow up because that's they're right. all impositions. So yeah, you have to get do, rid of them. That's right. And so if you want to be the most you, then everything that has been accepted as truth, every system of logic, every system of objective reality, all those become secondary to the pursuit of authenticity. Yeah. And, and so that is self-destructive in the extreme. Yeah, well, you can't function you end that up way. With these ideas. Alrighty, folks, if you want to watch that entire conversation, you have to be a member over at Daily Wire Plus. So head on over to dailywire.com slash Ben. Use code Ben for 25% off your subscription today. That's dailywire.com slash Ben. Become a member at Daily Wire Plus. You'll get all that Jordan Peterson has to offer. Our newest member over at Daily Wire Plus. It's a blast. Have a wonderful weekend.